Typically, in life, we don't get to script our ending. One moment we're here, the next we're gone. Some deaths happen so suddenly that there isn't time to think about your last words. As the American Revolutionary War raged on in 1776, Nathan Hale was captured by British soldiers. On September 22nd, before being hanged for his involvement in the war, Hale is quoted as saying, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. That's a great quote from a young man who had time to think about what he might say as he awaited death. When compared to the last words of Elvis Presley, we find that not everyone is that lucky. As Elvis passed his fiancée Ginger inside his Graceland mansion early in the morning of August 16th, 1977, he simply said, I'm going to the bathroom to read. And that was it. One of the most famous human beings to ever walk the planet. And those were his final words. Had he known that he'd be dead moments later, I'm guessing the king would have thought of something better to say. Edgar Allan Poe, who'd become quite the alcoholic, was found in a Baltimore gutter, surrounded by rats. He'd spent the night at a local bar and was found disheveled and delirious. What killed him in 1849, at the age of 40, was likely rabies. As he died in the hospital, his final words were said to be, Lord, help my poor soul. As sad as Poe's words were, we find hope in what Thomas Edison uttered as he neared death. On October 18, 1931, at the age of 84, Edison succumbed to complications from diabetes. Hours before his death, Edison is said to have emerged from a coma. He reportedly opened his eyes, looked upwards, and said, It is very beautiful over there. Somewhere in between the sad and the hopeful, we have Sir Winston Churchill. Beginning in 1949, Churchill suffered through eight strokes, the last coming on January 15, 1965. He died nine days later, while at his home in London. His final words? I'm bored with it all. Winston Churchill was ready to go. My final words will be far less poignant and will probably sound something like, Whee! or oops. As fascinating as the final utterance from a person of historical importance is, I thought it would be neat to look back at some final letters, communications, correspondence, what have you, written by well-known historical figures. In some cases, they knew that death was imminent, sometimes not. Episode 51, Last Letters. We begin in 1536. It's the 15th of May, and Anne Boleyn is seated in a tower, awaiting her fate. She's the second wife of King Henry VIII, and she's to be executed on charges of adultery, incest, and conspiracy against the king. In actuality, some historians believe Anne's only crimes were her inability to produce a male heir, and her refusal to tame her strong personality. The king is given two options in dealing with Anne. She may either be burnt at the stake, or have her head smitten off via longsword. King Henry felt pity for his second of six wives, and ordered her to be smit. Smited? Smitted. Smat. Decapitated. 
The following is Anne Boleyn's final letter, sent to Henry VIII, on or about May 15, 1536. She protested her innocence while announcing her continued devotion to him. Sir, if you say, confessing a truth indeed may procure my safety, I shall with all willingness and duty perform your command. But let not your grace ever imagine that your poor wife will ever be brought to acknowledge a fault or not so much as a thought thereof proceeded. And to speak a truth, never prince had wife more loyal in all duty and in all true affection than you have ever found in Anne Boleyn. Neither did I at any time so far forget myself in my received queenship, but that I always looked for such an alteration as now I find, for the ground of my preferment being on no surer foundation than your grace's fancy. The least alteration I knew was fit and sufficient to draw that fancy to some other subject. Try me, good king, but let me have a lawful trial, and let not my sworn enemies sit as my accusers and judges, Yea, let me receive an open trial, for my truth shall fear no open shame. Then shall you see, either mine innocency cleared, your suspicion and conscience satisfied, the ignominy and slander of the world stopped, or my guilt openly declared, so that whatsoever God or you may determine of me, your grace may be freed from an open censure to follow your affection already settled on that party, for whose sake I am now as I am. But if you have already determined of me, and that not only my death, but an infamous slander must bring you the enjoying of your desired happiness, then I desire of God that he will pardon your great sin therein, and likewise mine enemies, the instruments thereof, and that he will not call you to a strict account for your unprincely and cruel usage of me. At his general judgment seat, where both you and myself must shortly appear, and in whose judgment, I doubt not, whatsoever the world may think of me, mine innocence shall be openly known and sufficiently cleared. Her letter was ignored, and on May 19, 1536, Anne Boleyn was beheaded by a French swordsman. Henry VIII quickly moved on to wife number three, Jane Seymour, eleven days later. Marie Antoinette has always been a polarizing figure, dating back to her days as a young Austrian princess, to her time as the Queen of France, and ever since her death. She ruled France, alongside her husband Louis XVI, from 1774 to 1793. The pair is commonly associated with the decline of the French monarchy. Marie liked to have fun, she liked to spend money, and was the subject of countless scandals and rumors, some true and some not. On October 15, 1789, a mob of angry women, upset by the lack of food for their families and knowing the royal family was enjoying all of the finest foods, marched to the royal palace of Versailles. The crowd of over 7,000 demanded that the royal family be placed on house arrest and returned to Paris. While in Paris, June 20, 1791, Marie, her husband, and three children decided to make a run for it. They wore disguises to fit in with the locals and headed off towards their destination, the Austrian Netherlands, nearly 200 miles away. Eventually, the National Guard caught up with the family, and they were returned to Paris. The family lived comfortably while on house arrest, but watched the monarchy crumble and saw their names dragged through the mud. In early 1793, 
King Louis XVI, was found guilty of conspiracy, and on January 21, 1793, he was executed by guillotine. In August of that year, after a two-day trial, Marie Antoinette was found guilty of treason and sentenced to death by guillotine. On October 16th, as she sat in her cell at 4.30 in the morning, she wrote to her sister-in-law, Princess Elizabeth Philippine Marie Helene, for the final time. It is to you, my sister, that I write for the last time. I have just been condemned, not to a shameful death, for such is only for criminals, but to go and rejoin your brother, innocent like him. I hope to show the same firmness in my last moments. I am calm, as one is when one's conscience reproaches one with nothing. I feel profound sorrow in leaving my poor children. You know that I only lived for them and for you, my good and tender sister. You, who out of love have sacrificed everything to be with us. In what a position do I leave you? I have learned from the proceedings at my trial that my daughter was separated from you. Alas, poor child, I do not venture to write to her. She would not receive my letter. I do not even know whether this will reach you. Do you receive my blessing for both of them? I hope that one day, when they are older, they may be able to rejoin you and to enjoy to the full your tender care. Let them both think of the lesson which I have never ceased to impress upon them, that the principles and the exact performance of their duties are the chief foundation of life, and then mutual affection and confidence in one another will constitute its happiness. Let my daughter feel that, at her age, she ought always to aid her brother by the advice which her greater experience and her affection may inspire her to give him. And let my son, in his turn, render to his sister all the care and all the services which affection can inspire. Let them, in short, both feel that, in whatever positions they may be placed, they will never be truly happy but through their union. Let them follow our example. In our own misfortunes, how much comfort has our affection for one another afforded us? And in times of happiness, we've enjoyed that doubly from being able to share it with a friend. And where can one find friends more tender and more united than in one's own family? Let my son never forget the last words of his father, which I repeat emphatically. Let him never seek to avenge our deaths. I have to speak to you of one thing which is very painful to my heart. I know how much pain the child must have caused you. Forgive him, my dear sister. Think of his age and how easy it is to make a child say whatever one wishes, especially when he does not understand it. It will come to pass one day, I hope, that he will better feel the value of your kindness and your tender affection for both of them. It remains to confide to you my last thoughts. I should have wished to write them at the beginning of my trial, but besides that, they did not leave me any means of writing. Events have passed so rapidly that I really have not had time. I die in the Catholic, Apostolic, and Roman religion, that of my fathers, that in which I was brought up and which I have always professed, having no spiritual consolation to look for, not even knowing whether there are still in this place any priests of that religion, and indeed the place where I am would expose them to too much danger if they were to enter it but once. I sincerely implore pardon of God for all the faults which I may have committed during my life. I trust that in His goodness He will mercifully accept my last prayers, as well as those which I for a long time addressed to Him, to receive my soul 
into his mercy. I beg pardon of all whom I know, and especially of you, my sister, for all the vexations which, without intending it, I may have caused you. I pardon all my enemies the evils that they have done me. I bid farewell to my aunts and to all my brothers and sisters. I had friends. The idea of being forever separated from them and from all their troubles is one of the greatest sorrows that I suffer in dying. Let them at least know that to my latest moment I thought of them. Farewell, my good and tender sister. May this letter reach you. Think always of me. I embrace you with all my heart, as I do my poor dear children. My God, how heartrending it is to leave them forever. Farewell. Farewell. I must now occupy myself with my spiritual duties, as I am not free in my actions. Perhaps they will bring me a priest, but I hear protests that I will not say a word to him, but that I will treat him as a total stranger. Sullivan Ballou was an American lawyer and politician from Rhode Island. At the age of 32, he became an officer in the Union Army during the American Civil War. After training with the 2nd Rhode Island Infantry at Camp Clark in Washington, D.C., they joined with the Union Army of Northeastern Virginia. On July 21st, the regiment took part in the First Battle of Bull Run. Ballou was nervous about the way the war was going. So, on the 14th of July, 1861, he wrote a letter to his young wife, Sarah. My very dear wife, indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. Lest I should not be able to write you again, I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I shall be no more. Our movement may be one of a few days' duration and full of pleasure, and it may be one of severe conflict and death to me. Not my will, but thine, O God, be done. If it is necessary that I should fall on the battlefield for any country, I am ready. I have no misgivings about, or lack of confidence in, the cause in which I am engaged, and my courage does not halt or falter. I know how strongly American civilization now leans upon the triumph of government, and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and suffering of the revolution, and I am willing perfectly willing to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government and to pay that debt. But, my dear wife, when I know that with my own joys I lay down nearly all of yours and replace them in this life with care and sorrows, when, after having eaten for long years the bitter fruit of orphanage myself, I must offer it as their only sustenance to my dear little children, is it weak or dishonorable? while the banner of my purpose floats calmly and proudly in the breeze, that my unbounded love for you, my darling wife and children, should struggle in fierce, though useless, contest with my love of country. I cannot describe to you my feelings on this calm summer night, when two thousand men are sleeping around me, many of them enjoying the last, perhaps, before that of death. And I, suspicious that death is creeping behind me with his fatal dart, am communing with God, my country, and thee. I have sought most closely and diligently, and often in my breast, for a wrong motive in this hazarding the happiness of those I loved, and I could not find one. A pure love of my country, and of the principles I have often advocated before the people, and the name of honor that I love more than I fear death, have called upon me, and I have obeyed. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence can break. 
and yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me irresistibly on with all those chains to the battlefield. The memories of all the blissful moments I have spent with you come crowding over me, and I feel most deeply grateful to God and you that I have enjoyed them so long. And how hard is it for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years when, God willing, we might still have lived and loved together and seen our boys grow up to honorable manhood around us. I know I have but few claims upon divine providence, but something whispers to me, perhaps it is wafted prayer of my little Edgar, that I shall return to my loved ones unharmed. If I do not, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I love you, nor that, when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Forgive my many faults and the many pains I've caused you. How thoughtless, how foolish I have oftentimes been. How gladly would I wash out with my tears every little spot upon your happiness and struggle with all the misfortune of this world to shield you and my children from harm. But I cannot. I must watch you from the spirit land and hover near you while you buffet the storms with your precious little freight and wait with sad patience till we meet to part no more. But, oh, Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen around those they loved, I shall always be near you in the garish day, in the darkest night, amidst your happiest scenes and gloomiest hours, always, always. And if the soft breeze fans your cheek, it shall be my breath, or the cool air cools your throbbing temples, it shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me, dear. Think I am gone, and wait for me, for we shall meet again. As for my little boys, they will grow as I have done, and never know a father's love and care. Little Willie is too young to remember me long, and my blue-eyed Edgar will keep my frolics with him among the dimmest memories of his childhood. Sarah, I have unlimited confidence in your maternal care, and your development of their characters. Tell my two mothers, I call God's blessing upon them. Oh, Sarah, I wait for you there. Come to me, and lead thither my children. Sullivan on the 21st of July, during a Confederate attack at Bull Run, Sullivan Ballou was hit by a six-pounder cannonball, removing most of his right leg and killing his horse. He was carried off the field, and the remainder of his leg was amputated. Unfortunately, the Union Army was defeated and forced to retreat and leave behind their wounded. Ballou died from his injuries a week later. Ballou's body was reportedly exhumed, decapitated, and burned by Confederate troops, his body was never recovered. Sarah was only 24 at the time, and for the remainder of her life, she remained a widow. She passed away at the age of 82 in 1917, and is now buried next to her husband's empty grave. Wild Bill Hickok was a folk hero of the American Old West, known for his sometimes exaggerated life on the frontier. Hickok was a soldier, scout, lawman, gambler, showman, and actor. He's best known for his involvement in many famous gunfights. While visiting the town of Deadwood within the Dakota Territory, Hickok found himself playing poker at Natalin Mann's Saloon No. 10. It was August 1st, 1876, and he'd had a strange feeling ever since arriving in Deadwood. He told his friend that he thought he could be killed while there. The premonition was so strong that he sat down a few days prior and wrote a letter to his wife, Agnes. Agnes, darling, if such should be, we never meet again while firing my last shot. 
I will gently breathe the name of my wife, Agnes. And with wishes, even for my enemies, I will make the plunge and try to swim to the other shore. As a seat opened up at Hickok's table, a drunk man named Jack McCall sat down to play. He was losing badly, and Hickok urged the man to walk away and offered McCall money for breakfast. McCall took the money, but was noticeably embarrassed. The next day, Hickok was back in the saloon playing poker again. He had his back to the entrance, which was unlike him. He liked to see what was going on, who was coming and going. He never noticed McCall entering the saloon, who then walked up behind Hickok, drew his forty-five caliber revolver, and fired one round into the back of Hickok's head at point-blank range. Hickok died instantly, dropping his final poker hand onto the table. He was holding two black aces and two black eights. The hand has been known as the dead man's hand in poker ever since. While alive, Vincent Van Gogh was considered to be a madman and commercial failure. It's believed that of the nearly 1,000 paintings he produced in his 37 years, he only sold one. His work only became popular after his death, when he was recognized as a misunderstood genius. Today, Van Gogh's works are among the world's most expensive paintings to have ever sold. In 1886, Van Gogh moved to Paris, where his younger brother Theo lived. Theo was his closest friend and ally. Theo, who was an art dealer, supported his brother financially and introduced him to a slew of popular artists of that time period. By 1888, Vincent was suffering from severe depression. On December 23rd of that year, he famously cut off a good portion of his left ear with a razor, wrapped it up, and gave it to a prostitute at a nearby brothel. Over the next few years, Van Gogh was in and out of hospitals and mental institutions, and fluctuated between periods of creativity and madness. By 1890, Van Gogh had moved away from his brother but kept in contact with him regularly. On July 23rd, he sent a rambling, incoherent letter to Theo. Four days later, he shot himself in a nearby field, which had been the subject of a number of his paintings, and on the 29th, he succumbed to his wounds while in his brother's arms. My dearest brother, thanks for your letter of today and the 50-franc note it contained. I would like to try, perhaps, to write to you about a lot of things, but the inclination has passed, and then I feel the pointlessness of it all. I hope that you found these worthy gentlemen favorably disposed toward you. As far as the peace of your household is concerned, I am as much convinced that it can be preserved as I am that it is threatened by storms. I would rather not forget the little French I know, and am certainly unable to see the sense in delving deeper into the rights or wrongs of one side or the other in any discussion. It wouldn't be my concern, anyway. Things move quickly here. Aren't Dries, you and I, rather more convinced of that? Don't we understand that rather better than those ladies? So much the better for them, but in the long run, we can't even count on talking coolly about it. As far as I'm concerned, I am giving my canvases my undivided attention. I am trying to do as well as certain painters whom I have greatly loved and admired. Now I have returned. My feeling is that the painters themselves are fighting more and more with their backs to the wall. Very well. But hasn't the moment for trying to make them understand the usefulness of an association already passed? On the other hand, an association, should it come about, would go under if the rest were to go under. In that case, you might say the dealers could throw their lot in with the Impressionists. But that would be very short-lived. Altogether, it seems to me that personal initiative is of no avail. 
and given the experience we've had, should we really be starting all over again? I noted with pleasure that the Gauguin from Brittany I saw is very beautiful, and it seems to me that the others he has done will probably be so as well. Perhaps you will take a look at the sketch of Daubigny's garden. It is one of my most carefully thought out canvases. I am adding a sketch of some old thatched roofs and the sketches of two size 30 canvases representing vast fields of wheat after the rain. Hershig has asked if you to be kind enough to order for him the list of paints enclosed from the same dealer where you buy my paints. Tacit could send them to him direct, cash on delivery, but then he would have to give him the 20% discount. Whatever would be the simplest. Or else you could put them in with the package of paints for me, adding the bill or telling me how much the total amount comes to, and then he would send the money to you. You cannot get anything good in the way of paints here. I have cut my own order to the barest minimum. Hershig is beginning to get a better idea of things, it seems to me. He has done a portrait of the old schoolmaster, which he has given to him, good. And then he has some landscape studies, which are almost the same color as the Konings at your place. They may turn out to be quite like these, or like the things by Vorman, which we saw together. Goodbye for now. Keep well, and good luck in business, etc. Remember me to Joe and handshakes in thought. Ever yours, Vincent. Virginia Woolf was, and is, considered one of the most important modernist 20th century authors. She was one of the first to use stream of consciousness as a narrative device. Woolf published her first novel, The Voyage Out, in 1915. She wrote a number of popular books and essays in the 1920s, some of which would go on to inspire feminism some 50 years later. Her writings have been translated into more than 50 languages, and been the subject of plays, novels, and films. Unfortunately, as many great artists seem to endure, Wolfe was troubled by mental illness her entire life. She was institutionalized several times and attempted suicide at least twice. On March 28, 1941, Virginia Woolf reportedly filled her overcoat pockets with rocks and walked into the river behind her house. She'd recently fallen back into a deep depression that she saw no way out of. She left behind this note for her husband, Leonard, who was an author in his own right. Dearest, I feel certain I'm going mad again. I feel we can't go through another of those terrible times, and I shan't recover this time. I begin to hear voices, and I can't concentrate. So I am doing what seems the best thing to do. You have given me the greatest possible happiness. You have been in every way all that anyone could be. I don't think two people could have been happier till this terrible disease came. I can't fight any longer. I know that I am spoiling your life, that without me you could work. And you will, I know. You see, I can't even write this properly. I can't read. What I want to say is, I owe all the happiness of my life to you. You've been entirely patient with me, and incredibly good. I want to say that. Everybody knows it. If anybody could have saved me, it would have been you. Everything has gone from me but the certainty of your goodness. I can't go on spoiling your life any longer. I don't think two people could have been happier than we have been. Ernest Hemingway was an award-winning novelist and short story writer. The man's man of writing, Hemingway wrote such classics as The Sun Also Rises, A Farewell to Arms, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and The Old Man and the Sea. His works were influential on American and British fiction in the 20th century. 
He began writing in high school and took a job with the Kansas City Star newspaper after graduating. As World War I began, he was rejected by the military due to a defective eye, but eventually joined the fight as an ambulance driver for the American Red Cross. At 18 years old, he was wounded, given medals for bravery, and sent back home. Writing kept Hemingway busy for the next few decades, while he also traveled the world to ski or fish or hunt or fight bulls. He worked as a war correspondent during World War II, flying with the Royal Air Force, and seeing action during D-Day in Normandy and the Battle of the Bulge. After living in Cuba for a while in the 1950s, Hemingway returned to the States and settled in Idaho. Anxiety and depression were getting the best of him, and he had two long stays at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. It was during his second stay that he wrote his final letter. It was to his primary doctor's son, known as Fritz, and was mailed on June 15, 1961. After receiving a second round of numerous treatments of electroshock therapy, Hemingway was released to his home. Two days later, on July 2, 1961, he used one of his numerous shotguns to kill himself. His family and church told the press that it was an accident. His wife would later admit that he took his own life. Dear Fritz, I was terribly sorry to hear this morning in a note from your father that you were laid up in Denver for a few days more, and speed off this note to tell you how much I hope you'll be feeling better. It has been very hot and muggy here in Rochester, but the last two days it has turned cool and lovely with the nights wonderful for sleeping. The country is beautiful around here, and I've had a chance to see some wonderful country along the Mississippi, where they used to drive the logs in the old lumbering days, and the trails where the pioneers came north. Saw some good bass jumping in the river. I never knew anything about the upper Mississippi before, and it is really a very beautiful country, and there are plenty of pheasants and ducks in the fall, but not as many as in Idaho, and I hope we'll both be back there shortly and can joke about our hospital experiences together. Best always to you, old-timer, from your good friend who misses you very much. Best to all the family. I'm feeling fine and very cheerful about things in general and hope to see you all soon. Papa. What's even sadder is that six years later, in 1967, Fritz died from a long-term congenital heart condition, aged just 15. Nowadays, I suppose it would be more likely that someone would send a last text or tweet or Facebook post than to send a letter. Handwritten letters are personal, and often thought out in ways that modern technology doesn't allow for. So do me a favor. Take a moment, find an envelope and a stamp and some paper, and write someone an actual letter. Thank you to all the patrons who are supporting this show on Patreon. I couldn't do this without you guys. Thank you to Dave, David, Jim, Marie, Laura, Vicky, and Chris for being a part of the team. If you'd like to become a patron of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash curator135. There are three tiers of support, or you can name your own donation. Please like, follow, and subscribe to Curator135 on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. If you enjoyed this or any of my other podcast episodes, don't forget to leave a five-star review. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. One, four, three.